Good morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 this morning, so you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there might be some around you on uh, a wall somewhere. We'll have the words to this passage up on the screen behind me as we're going along. We're going to be uh, in this whole chapter this morning, but as we start out, I'll just be reading uh, verses 1 through 9. So we're in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And if you look at the screen behind me, you'll see that I have entitled this sermon, The Tower of Babylon. That might not be uh, the title that you're familiar with. Maybe you know this as the Tower of Babel. So why did I call this the Tower of Babylon? Well, actually in Hebrew, the word Babel and the word Babylon are the same word. Or really the word Babylon is the word Babel. All the way through the Old Testament, it's the same name. We're talking about the same place here. And so as I read these verses this morning and as I talk, I'm going to kind of go through uh, between those two names. And I'm going to read it as the Tower of Babylon because I want us to see this as one consistent theme, especially as we get into the New Testament that the Bible traces, this idea of Babylon and, and what uh, God does with the Babylonians, even when we have Babylonian hearts. So let me read this, verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 11. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babylon because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me one more time? Oh God, as we open your word, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I had this same experience that I have had. Actually, I had this experience yesterday. So I ordered a barn door kit off of the internet, and it was from a brand that I've never heard of before, but the reviews were fine. So I bring it home and I open it up and I open the instructions to figure out how in the world I hang this thing on my wall. And as I'm reading the instructions, they're just a little bit off. You had this happen to you? Just a little, not, not off enough that I can't figure out how this thing works, but off enough that I know that the person who wrote these instructions probably does not speak English as their native language. And I'm not making fun of the person who wrote those instructions. Actually, every time this happens to me, I'm very impressed by the person that wrote those instructions. If you gave me a barn door kit and told me how to explain it to someone else in French, I wouldn't even have a clue where to start. I don't even know how to say barn door kit in French. But it's just a little reminder of the way that language separates us. And maybe you've had... This experience, if you've traveled in another country or you've immigrated to another country where they speak a language that's different from the one you grew up learning, you have seen that language divides us. It puts up barriers. It makes us, it makes it hard for us to understand one another, to agree with one another, to cooperate together. Sometimes it even leads to outright hostility. Well, our passage this morning tells us where this division came from. In fact, Genesis 11 picks up immediately off that last week in Genesis chapter 10, the so-called table of nations. So if you remember that, if you were here last week in Genesis chapter 10, there was these 
70 tribes or 70 nations that were all descended from the three sons of Noah that came off of the, the ark after the flood. And they, they spread out. And Genesis chapter 10 repeats this refrain like you can see in verse 31. That as they went out, they went out by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now what's really interesting is that Genesis chapter 10 doesn't tell us where these languages came from. But Genesis chapter 11 does. So if you look down at verse chapter 1 of Genesis chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 11, sorry, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11, look at how it begins. Now the whole earth had what? One language and the same words. So chapter 10, there's all of these languages. In chapter 11, there's one language. Well, what's going on here? Well, clearly these are out of order chronologically. Genesis chapter 11 precedes chapter 10. And this is not uncommon at all in the biblical literature that the author would rearrange things to make a point thematically. And that's what's happening here with chapter 11. Why is chapter 11 after chapter 10? Well, Moses, the one who put together the book of Genesis and wrote the book of Genesis, he put chapter 11 here so that we would see this as the major division point in the whole book. This is kind of the hinge in the whole book of Genesis. This is the major, uh, the major turn in the story. So if you remember, if you've been with us in the study in Genesis where we've been up to this point, this is how it's gone. In chapters 1 and 2, God made the whole world, the whole cosmos, and he made mankind in it, and he made it very good. And then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against God, and they plunged that whole created order into sin. And then beginning in chapter 4, we just see this downward spiral as the effects of the fall take their, work their way through all of mankind and all of creation. Things just go from bad to worse, on and on. More sin piling up, more corruption piling up, more judgment from God piling up, all the way until we get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is really meant to serve as kind of the low point in the whole story. The flower of human fallenness as it has taken its effect in the world. But as I said, this is, this is the turn. So, so as we turn from chapter 11 into chapter 12, chapter 12 shifts its focus from this worldwide, cosmic, mankind-wide effects of the fall to one man, Abraham, and to his son, Isaac, and to his son, Israel, and to Israel's 12 sons. And the whole rest of the story of the book of Genesis deals with this one family, and how God is using that one family to fix everything that went wrong in chapter 3. And so it is this turn, and really from the rest of the, that, that chapter all the way through the rest of the Bible, is this story of God fixing everything that went wrong. And so our chapter today is really, really important. And that's why Moses put it here at the very end of this first section. So if you're following along, taking notes, we're going to break this section up, this chapter up into three sections. And we'll begin with verses 1 and 4, which is the people build up. So this is verses 1 and 4. Look again at verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now on its face, this doesn't seem that bad, does it? Everybody has the same language, everyone's getting along, there's lots of unity, this is great. Except, if you remember what God's explicit commands to mankind have been up to this point in Genesis. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God made mankind and he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Then Noah, when he comes out of the, the ark, God says the very same thing to him in chapter 9, verse 7. You be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God's plan for mankind was always that they would go out, that they would spread his glory broadly because God made man in his image. And so he says, go to the ends of the earth, take my image with you, and in this way my glory will fill the whole earth. And here in Genesis chapter 11, we see mankind disobeying that command. 
They don't want to go out and fill the whole earth. In fact, they came to this place, this plain in the land of Shinar, which is in Mesopotamia, so the land in between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, what is today, uh, Iraq. They find this place. It's part of the Fertile Crescent. They say, this is great. Let's not go out. Let's stay here. Let's settle down. Let's build up. Verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now this detail is included in here because what this is is describing a technological advancement. These are new building tools. God has endowed humanity with an incredible capacity to invent, to create, to solve Problems. I think this is part of our being made in the image of God, that we are sub-creators, that we are inventive. And so for all of our ingenuity and for all our technology, well, these can be wonderful gifts, can't they? They can be wonderful things, our technology, when we use it for, for the right purposes, when we use it for the good of our neighbor, when we use it for the glory of God. But that same technology be- can become a terrible tool for sin and for idolatry and for false hope. And that's what happens here. Look at verse four. They've got these bricks and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So notice there's actually two things that they're building for themselves. They're building a tower, but not only a tower, they're building a city. A city means walls. A city means gates that you can close. A city means security, which I think means that these people, as they were settling down, felt insecure. They were afraid. They were afraid of what would happen if they actually followed God's commands. That would put them in a vulnerable position. That would compromise their security, their safety in themselves. These people are believing a lie. They're believing the same lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden. God's commands are not good. If you obeyed God's commands, it would lead to your harm. God's plans are to hurt you, to keep something good from you. So only in disobeying God, only in taking control for yourselves can you find the security and the comfort that you long for. They're believing this same lie. And so they set out to build a city in disobedience to God's commands. And they build a tower. In other words, tower here, it's it's a little misleading because we, in English, hear the word tower and we think of something very tall and kind of skinny, right? But, but here, what this word tower actually means is, is a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? You've seen these? It's kind of like a pyramid, but it's made out of kind of stair-stepped tiers like that. And in fact, it has a big staircase that runs all the way from the bottom to the top. That's what they're building here is a ziggurat. In the, the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon, they have found the structure of a ziggurat that was more than 90 meters across. Some think it could have gone as high as 90 meters high. That's, that's like a football field tall, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was an object, a, a structure that was used for religious purposes. They're all over the ancient Near East, okay, these ziggurats, these pyramids. And what they were for was that they would build a temple to whatever god that they worshipped. And then they would build a ziggurat right next to the temple with a staircase that led all the way up to the top. But that staircase wasn't for people. People didn't go to the top of the ziggurat. It was left there as a staircase for the god to come down and enter into his temple. That's what they're building here is this this stairway to heaven to invite this God to come down. Now, why do they want to build a tower reaching up to the heavens? Is it because this God, and we don't know what God it is, but this God that they're worshiping, is it because they love him so much that they just want to invite his presence in to dwell with him? Because they want to give him the glory and honor that they think is due this God's name. Is that why they're building this tower up to the heavens? What does the text say? They're building a tower 
that they might make a name for themselves. Even though they on the outside look like they are practicing faithful religious observance, the whole reason that they are doing this is not to give that God glory, but it's that that God would give them glory. Do you see that? They are building this power that they might coerce, manipulate this God to come down. It's almost like they built a God trap. Said, so right here, we can get this God to come in into this temple and we'll do the stuff so that he will do what we want. He will make our name great. He will bless us. Do you see how little this God is that they're worshiping? This little bitty God that they can manipulate to come down. In fact, them building this tower is them saying, we're the gods. We're the ones that are really in charge. We're the ones that really deserve worship. We're the ones that can decide what is good and what is right. So they have believed this lie. They have seen what they want most in rebellion to God's commands. They have reached out their hands and taken a brick. They have transgressed their limitations and they have become like gods themselves. Does that sound familiar? This is the Garden of Eden all over again. Except instead of being two people, it's all of mankind, but it is the same sin across humanity. They have become like gods themselves. They think they are better than God. And they have taken control. It's called rebellion. It's what Adam and Eve did. And just like in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, God came near into the garden to investigate, to see what was happening. The same is true here. So look at verses 5 through 9. This is our second point. God comes down. The people built up. Now God comes down. Look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord came down to see. That's meant to be deeply ironic. They think they're building this great city. They think they're building this great tower that reaches all the way up to the heavens. But God, who is in the heavens and who does whatever he pleases, he can't even see it from where he is. It's that small to God. There's a commentator many, many years ago named Umberto Casuto. He wrote about the book of Genesis, and he wrote these words. I loved it. You children of Babylon, you desired that the top of your tower should be in heaven, and you did not understand that even if you were to raise the summit of your ziggurat ever so high, you would be no nearer to him than when you stand upon the ground. Verse 6, God says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. In these verses, too, there are echoes of Genesis chapter 3. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, so lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's the same words here. Behold, this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And when God says these things, it's not like God is threatened by us. No, God is concerned about what we will do to ourselves with the power that we have. And so just like in Eden, where where God sent them out away from the garden, east, away from the tree of life, so here in verse 8 it says, The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's a play on words 
that's happening right there. The word, the word Babel in Hebrew, Babel, it sounds like the word for confused below. So they're, they're doing a play on words. Actually, uh, this whole passage, if you could read it in Hebrew, which you can't because of the Tower of Babel, but if you could read it, you would see that there's all of these amazing plays on words and, and the author's doing really funny things. It's so cool. And I think it was just such an ironic reminder that we can't understand these things because God confused their language. Just like that. He comes down, he sees their little tower, and just like that, it doesn't even tell us how he did it. He just does. And in one day, he takes away the source of their power. He opposes them. He opposes the proud and their projects. And he takes it away. And this explains all those nations in Genesis chapter 10. This is where all of those languages came from. And this explains all of the division in our world. Nation rising up against nation, tribalism, and factioning, ethnic tension, ethnic pride, ethnic hatred. The word ethnicity comes from the Greek word ethnos, which means nations. And what are nations except groups of people defined by language? And remember that language is so much more than just a code for communicating. If that's all it was, then we could just use Google Translate and everything would make sense. But language is at the core of our, our whole worldview. So is it any wonder that we disagree with one another? Because God has confused our language. And it's a terrible, devastating effect of the fall. But if you think that that's bad, all of this division and all of the hard-to-understand instruction manuals, well, things could be a lot worse. When I was a little kid in school, I had a best friend named Miles. And whenever Miles and I sat together in class, we caused trouble. I was that kid, and I don't know what it was about Miles, but he just brought it out in me, and we would ruin the whole experience for everyone else. And so what would our teacher do? Separate us. He'd have to sit in one corner, I'd have to sit in another corner, and that was an act of judgment. It was an act of punishment, but it was also for my good, and it was for the good of all of the people involved. That division kept the worst from happening. And it allowed everybody else to experience the class the way that it was supposed to be experienced. That's what God is doing here. Mankind has so much potential. We have so much creativity. We have so much power. And we are so sinful. We are so idolatrous. We have, as one poet put it, Babylonian hearts, each of us. And so as Derek Kidner put it, it's better that we have worldwide division than collective apostasy. And so God separated us. And it truly is a low point in the book of Genesis. It's a low point in the story of mankind. But it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Hallelujah. Like I said, this is the hinge. This is the hinge in Genesis, but this is the hinge in the rest of the Bible. And as I say, the night is always darkest right before the dawn. We're about to get to the dawn. Look at this third point, verse 10 through 32. God builds up his people. The people build up, God comes down. Now God builds up his people. And I won't read all of these verses, verses 10 through 32. If you wanted to, you could actually break this section up into two sections as well because we have two section headings. Look at verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. And then look at verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Everything that happened up until this point was in the section of the generations of Noah. But now we get two more, Shem, Terah. But, but we'll just take this all together because this is tracing one family lineage, one genealogy. And if you'll notice, this is different from the genealogy that we saw last week in chapter 10. There in that genealogy, it, it kind of splinters and branches and we get all of these nations and all of these children going in different directions. But this genealogy that we have here at the end of chapter 11, this is more like the genealogy that we saw in chapter 5. Do you remember this in chapter 5? It's the genealogy that goes from father to son, father to son, from Adam to Noah. And it's only concerned with this one line, this one chosen, promised 
line that God was going to use to accomplish his redemptive purposes. That's what this genealogy is. It goes through only one of Noah's sons, Shem. This is the line of the Shemites. You remember this from last week? The Shemites or the Semites? It was Shem that was blessed by Noah in chapter 9 when he cursed Canaan and then he said that Japheth, the Gentiles, would be blessed themselves by coming into dwelling in the tents of Shem. You remember this? I thought that was so cool last week. This is the line of Shem. These are the Shemites that we're looking at here now, this line of promise. It goes from Shem to Eber, verse 14. Eber is where we get the name Hebrew from. So this is the line of the Hebrews. And then it goes through Peleg in verse 16. If you were to go back and read chapter 10, when it talks about Peleg there, it says his name means division because in his days the earth was divided. I think that that's a time marker. I think that that's saying that it was in Peleg's day that the Tower of Babylon happened. This is when that division happened. And so we go now through Peleg. And then Peleg fathers Reu, and Reu fathers Serug, and Serug fathers Nahor, and Nahor fathers Terah. And I think the most important thing for us to note in this genealogy so far is that there's nothing really to note. Compared, compared to even other genealogies in the book, this is unremarkable. There's, there's no one like Enoch who walks with God and then isn't. There's, there's no one that's mentioned as calling on the name of the Lord. There's not even a Nimrod like we got in chapter 10. And we haven't even gotten to talk about Nimrod yet. In chapter 10, verse 7, we get this guy Nimrod who is a son of Cush, a son of Ham. He's one of Noah's grandsons. And in verse 8 of chapter 10, it says, Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I know some of you guys that are celebrating deer season are like, all right, I'm going to name my kid Nimrod. That's awesome. <laughs> mighty hunter. Don't do that. Because <laughs> what that's saying is probably a bad thing. And it says that he's a mighty hunter. What that actually means is or what that probably means is that he was a hunter of men. That he was like a bloodthirsty conqueror. And when it says before the Lord, that can actually mean in opposition to the Lord. I think that would be a better way to understand that. That he was a tyrant that stood opposed to God. And then look at verse 10. It says of Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. In the land of Shinar. Verse 11, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. That's another ancient enemy of the Jews. And then Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin. That is the great city. So we've already seen the founding of this city of Babylon. Now we have another detail that we can say standing behind that self-focused, man-glorifying effort is this man Nimrod. But think about it from the worldly perspective. Nimrod was impressive. I mean, it says he was a king. Did you see that? He has a kingdom. He was mighty. He was powerful. He built great cities. We look at this list of the Shemites in chapter 11. Nothing like that. No one impressive, no heroes, not even heroes of the faith. No kings, no great cities. Just this one little family. And then we come to verse 27. Let me read this. This is verses 27 through 32. We'll have these words up on the screen. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur, the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took 
Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the story of Genesis, obviously there are some names there that, that stand out as very important. Even the journey from Ur to Haran to Canaan, that's going to be very significant as we go along. Canaan, of course, is the land of promise, the land that God promised to his people. But let's pretend that we don't know the rest of the story of Genesis. Let's just look at these verses right here, and let's ask, what stands out? What stands out as new or different? Well, again, we see death rearing its ugly head, even tragic death. That whole genealogy of Shem up to Terah doesn't repeat that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. They leave that out, but now here, Haran dies. His own father buries him and leaves behind his son, Lot. Even the whole chapter ends on a note of death. Terah dies. His family felt the sting of death, And now look at verse 30. This is very significant. It says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is new, isn't it? Not that there weren't barren women before, but this is the first time it's mentioned in this way that, that these genealogies that we're so used to going on and going on and going on and going on, and then we get to Sarai and she has no child. The line is dead. The line is as good as dead. And so we have moved from the Shemites being utterly unimpressive to now this family and the line of Terah being on the verge of dying out entirely. These are nobodies. So why are we spending time on them? Because this is the line that God chose. This is the line that God is going to use. The line in the line of the seed of the woman that we saw all the way back in chapter 3, this line out of which God would raise up a savior for his people who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the line. This line of no account. This line that apart from God's miraculous intervention cannot even save themselves. This is the line. And that's how our God works. Amen? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is talking to the church. This is talking to you. If you have believed, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's our God, and that's our people. Not impressive on our own, not wise, not powerful, but we have a powerful God that makes us something. So it is with this line, this line of Terah. So if you've still got your Bible open, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, just the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12. As Ryan said, we're going to take a break from Genesis so we can go into the book of Matthew for Advent and, and for a few weeks after. So we're going to be studying the book of Matthew for a few weeks, and then we'll come back to Genesis. Don't worry, we're going to find out what happens. But we can't wait to look at chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible open, we'll have these words on the screen. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear all the parallels to the Tower of Babylon in that? All the callbacks to Genesis chapter 11. In chapter 11, the Babylonians, they were trying to coerce God, to manipulate God, to get him to come down. Well, here in chapter 12, we kind of get the sense that Abram wasn't even looking for God. But God came down of his own freedom because God does what he pleases according to his purposes. Babylon, they refused to go out. God comes to Abram, and what does he say? Go, go already, and I'll bless you. The Babylonians, they set out to build their city, to build their tower so that they could make a name for themselves. What does God say to Abram? I will make your name great. I will be the one that does it. I will be the one that makes you into a great nation. And in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why is God doing this? Why is God coming and blessing Abram, of all of the people, of all of the insignificant people in the whole world, why is God doing that? So that Abraham can ultimately be the one who receives glory? Of course not. God is doing it for his own glory. God is building up his people for his glory and for the good of the whole world. And like I said, remember, this is the hinge. This is where the story starts getting good. This is where God's plans for redemption unfold because God's plans are to make Abram into a nation that blesses the whole world. And Abram obeys. Abram obeys. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham wasn't trying to build his own city. He knew he wasn't able to make his own name great, but God came to him and said, I'll build you up. I'll make of you a great nation, and I've got a city waiting for you. A city that you arrive at by faith, but it's going to mean living in tents now. It's going to mean being unimpressive now by worldly standards, but God uses what is of low account in this world to shame the powerful. And this, right here, as I said, this turning point, this is where these two themes, these two lines stretch through the rest of the Bible. We've already been talking about this as we've been studying this, these two parallel lines that you can just trace through the whole scriptures, this line of the seed of the woman and the line of the seed of the serpent. Well, now we can look at it in a slightly different way, or I can ask you this question. Are you a Shemite or a Babylonian? Which is it? You can only be one or the other. Are you a Shemite or a Babylonian? And of course, I don't mean ethnically. I don't even think there are Babylonians anymore. But what I mean is, what city are you trying to build? Whose name are you trying to make great? Are you trying to make your own name great? Are you at the center of your own worship? Are you even right now rebelling against God so that you can build your own little tower? You can be king over your own little kingdom. How'd that work out for Nimrod? How'd that go for Babylon? Don't be a Nimrod. <laughs> As you read the Bible, from cover to cover, you see this theme emerging. Babylon always loses. Babylon always loses. For all their impressiveness, for all their greatness, for all their worldly power, time and time again, beginning here in chapter 11 and through the Bible, every time the word Babylon comes up for all their pomp, for all their pride, for all their glory, they always fall. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, king of Babylon. 
thousand years after this happens. Remember, he's walking on the roof of his palace. He looks out on this city. He says, it's not this great Babylon that I have built. And the text says, no sooner were the words off of his mouth than a voice from heaven came and said, yeah, it's all going to be taken from you. And you're going to be driven away from man to live like a beast. And he was. You think about the exile of God's people into Babylon. They were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians destroyed their temple. And then they were destroyed by the Persians. And God kept his people safe. He brought them back. He established his people. We go all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 18. This is why this is so important to keep this word Babylon consistent. Revelation chapter 18. Babylon's not even around anymore at this point. And by the time the book of Revelation is written, Babylon has come to represent all the kingdoms of the world, all of man's pride, all of man's self-glorifying tendencies, all the nimrods of history. And in Revelation 18, an angel from heaven cries out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven. You see what John's doing there? Tower of Babylon. Their sins are heaped as high as heaven. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Don't be fooled by earthly appearances. No one is as great as our God. Not even a collection of people, not even if all people were to work together to try and mount up to heaven, no one is greater than our God. And don't you strive for this. Don't strive for power in this life. Don't strive for glory in this life. No matter how great you are, no matter how glorious you are, you are not greater than our God. And if you stand before him in opposition to him, Babylon always loses. Don't be a Babylonian. What does the angel say in Revelation 18? Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon and come where? Into the tents of Shem. Come dwell in the line of Shem. Yeah, we don't have a great city, but we've got a great God. And he's on our side. And that's the other theme that you can trace through the whole Bible. If one theme is Babylon always loses, the other theme is this. God builds up his people. And he will. And he does. Starting right here with Abram. Despite all appearances, despite the realm of possibility, God miraculously gives Abram and Sarai a child. Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac has a son, Israel. Israel has 12 sons and they become a great nation, but not because they deserved it. They didn't build themselves up. God built them up. In fact, they, they, the next time we see them, the next book of the Bible, we see them building up somebody else's city. They're building with bricks to build the Egyptian city. Somebody said that that's why Moses included this detail in chapter 11 about how they made the bricks because the Jews were just really interested in bricks because they had been doing it for 400 years in Egypt. And Egypt is just another Babylon. And what happens to Babylon? Babylon always loses. God rescues his people out of Egypt. He plants them in the land of Canaan just like he said that he would, but they're surrounded by these other nations. These other nations that speak other languages, that are raging, that are trying to conquer them. And yet the whole time that Israel, this nation that God made out of one man, the whole time they're there, God keeps reminding him of his promises. Hey, those nations, I'm going to bless them too. I'm going to bless them through you. That's the plan all along. He says this through the prophets. You think of Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, this vision of all the nations coming into Jerusalem to worship in the house of God. And that's where it says that they're going to take their swords and their spears and they're going to turn them into plowshares and they're going to do farming with them because they're not going to learn war anymore. There's peace between the nations when they come into the tents of Shem. You think of Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah 3, 9 through 10, listen to this. 
God promises that in the latter days, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. How cool is that? Zephaniah, God promising, hey, all that Babel stuff, I'm going to turn it around. Just like that, I'm going to give all the nations one speech again, pure speech, and they're going to have one accord. But what are they going to do with this unity? What are they going to do with with those language barriers removed? Are they going to just try and build another self-glorifying tower? No, they're going to come offer me worship. That's the plan. That's the vision. That's the Old Testament prophecy. That's where this is all going. And then we come to the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God come down. God saw us building our little towers, building our little cities, still proud, still sinful. And he came down. God the Son incarnate. And this time not to judge us, not to disperse us, but to forgive us and to reconcile us, to reconcile us back to God and to reconcile nation to nation. He came as the Prince of Peace, bringing reconciliation for all people who would come in, who would believe in him. But look at this. How did God do that? Did Jesus come and assert his rights as a king, born in the line of Abraham, born in the line of David? Did Jesus come and establish an earthly kingdom? Did he build a big city and a big tower? Did he make his name great according to worldly standards? No. Jesus came as a baby. There's nothing more vulnerable, there's nothing more insecure than a baby. That's how Jesus came. And he grew up poor, unimpressive, a wandering rabbi, but one that perfectly obeyed. He never rebelled, perfectly obeyed God's commands. And then at the proper time, he let the earthly authorities of his day, the Babylon of his day, he let them hang him on a cross. Jesus didn't build a tower reaching up to heaven. He let himself be lifted up. And he said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He died. That's why our God came down to die for you. He wasn't trying to build himself up. What an expression of humility. He gave up everything that he deserved so that you would be forgiven of your sins taking all of God's judgment that you deserved on himself on the cross. Even if your sins were piled up as high as heaven, if you believe in Jesus, all of those sins are transferred to him, and he died for you so that he could build you up, so that he could make something out of you, that he could forgive you, and more, that he could bless you. Jesus died, and they laid him in the tomb. And three days later, he rose again. He came up. And then what did he do? He ascended into heaven. He went up to heaven. John chapter 1, he's talking to the disciple Nathaniel. He says, truly, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see what he's doing there? Jesus is saying, I'm the staircase. I'm the way that heaven comes down, and I'm the way that you go up. I am the staircase. I am the way and the truth and the life. You cannot coerce God into blessing you. You cannot manipulate God through your religious activity, but you can come to God by humbling yourself and believing in Jesus. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble who admit that you have nothing to offer, that you're not impressive, that in fact you are a sinner. And Christ died for you. And not only for you. Not only for you. God's plan in Abraham was for all the nations. 
God's plan to make a nation out of Abraham was a plan to bless all the families of the earth. And that's what he did in Jesus Christ. He made a way for everyone to come in to worship God. Everyone to be brought in to his family. And so that's why Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he called all the disciples together before he ascended into heaven. And what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All the nations. It's the same story. God is still sending us out to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And he has redeemed his image in us, church. We look like him because of Jesus. And so Jesus says, go out, go to all those nations, invite them to come into the tents of Shem, because that was my plan in Genesis chapter 12. I wanted to bless all the families of the earth, and I'm doing it through you right now. So don't huddle up, don't settle down here, don't get comfortable. This isn't your city. Go, make disciples. And he sends them out, and then we get Acts chapter 2, which is what Peter read to us Earlier this morning when when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. And and think about this. This is the first thing the Holy Spirit does in the church. What's he do? He empowers them to preach the gospel in such a way that all of these people from all of these different nations can understand it. Pure speech. One language. Language. The very first thing the Holy Spirit does in the story of the Bible is reverse what happened at the Tower of Babylon. That's the power that we're sent out with, this Babylon reversing mission to go to all of the nations and preach the gospel that they would be brought in. And we're guaranteed success. Ryan mentioned those verses in Revelation, this vision of all of these people worshiping before the throne of God. All of these different tribes and languages and nations and peoples. We know that we will succeed. And more than that, church, we know we will get a city. We will get a city. We will get the glory. We will get the power. We will get the honor that we want, but not in this life. We're not building up a city in this life. We're waiting for a city in the next. We're not trying to build a city that reaches up to heaven. We're waiting for the city that comes down from heaven the new Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people forever. So let me close with these verses from Revelation chapter 21. By the light of the new Jerusalem will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us into this story, into this line, into this family for your glory. God, I pray if there's anyone in here that is still standing in opposition to you, still trying to build their own kingdom, Lord, help them to see how futile that is. That no one can stand before you. But if you are for us, then no one can stand against us. So God, for all of us who have put our trust in Jesus, who have come into the line of Shem, into the line of Abraham, into your family, Lord, please please send us out. Even kick us out if you have to. God, that we would go and we would spread your glory broadly around the world until that day where that city comes down and we dwell secure forever. Amen.